Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Hi, welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan, where we try to bring you the latest and the greatest of experts to help us on our path to wellness. What is wellness? Well, it's not average lab values because our lab values are determined by the average of 95% of our very sick population. So having average to having normal lab values is not something to cheer about. So let's find out more about what health is, what integrative health is, especially focused on women and our hormones. I mean, you know, people we're well known for our hormones, so let's find out about them so we can uh, deal with them proactively. Anyway, our guest today is Felice Gersh. She's a physician, multi-award winning with dual board certifications in obstetrics and gynecology, and integrative medicine. She has she has degrees from Princeton University and the University of Southern California School of Medicine. She completed a two-year fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona School of Medicine, and that's pretty impressive, and has a four-year residency of obstetrics and gynecology at Kaiser Hospital, Los Angeles. She's the founder and director of the Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, which provides comprehensive health care for women by combining the best evidence-based therapies from conventional, naturopathic, and holistic medicine. She taught obstetrics and gynecology at Keck, that's the University of Southern California School of Medicine, for 12 years as an assistant clinical professor. She received highly coveted Outstanding Volunteer Clinical Faculty Award. She now serves as an affiliate affiliate faculty member at the Fellowship in Integrative Medicine through the University of Arizona School of Medicine, where she lectures regularly and grades the case presentations written by fellowship students for their final exams. She has many scientific articles published in prestigious medical journals, and most recently had an article chosen to be in the Mayo Clinic Proceedings. Additionally, she is sought after as a medical forensic expert and has worked on numerous high profile legal cases. She's a best-selling author of PCOS, SOS, uh, Fertility Fast Track, and Menopause, 50 Things You Need to Know. I read the PCOS, SOS book, and it was informative, interesting, clear to understand, and I recommend it. She's a prolific lecturer and has featured in several uh, films and documentary series, including The Real Skinny on Fat with Montel Williams, The Business of Birth Control, and Fasting with Walter Longo, Ph.D. So welcome, Dr. Gersh. Well, I'm so excited to be here, and your program is fantastic, and your intro is so apropos. Like, what the heck is wellness? It's not just having average lab values. I love that. Well, tell us what wellness is. Well, we like to think wellness means optimizing your health at every stage of life so that you can live the life that you really want, you know, having your relationships, your work, your family, and having joy in life. So it's not 
defined as the absence of disease. It's really having the vitality of life. So how do we know if we have that? How do we know if it's optimal? And how do we get it to go toward optimal? I know you described that in the book. Well, this is no easy feat these days in our modern society. Not that it was ever easy throughout the millennia of humanity, but you have to work with reducing environmental toxicants, the pollution, the plastics, you know, all the different chemicals that have invaded our food supply. You have to actually also eat, you know, real food and lots of it, you know, so that you get plenty of polyphenols and antioxidants and the macronutrients along with the micronutrients, the trace metals and so on, that enable each cell of our body to actually do its job. So that's really critical. And then you need to get adequate restorative sleep and you need to have fitness. You can't just sit in on your rump all day. You have to get sunlight. You have to be in nature. You can see this is not easy. And for women, I always stress, you have to optimize your hormones. And hormones have been maligned, especially estrogen. You know, it's like I have to defend the, you know, the defenseless. Like, I used to have to defend fat because people would say, don't eat fat. And it's like, well, uh, how come there are essential fatty acids? You can't survive. Literally, you cannot survive if you don't consume fats. And then people would malign carbs. And it's like, wait a minute. We're not talking about root vegetables, are we? You know, we're not talking about whole grains, like the ancient grains like amaranth and millet and buckwheat. You know, we're talking about don't eat processed flour and sugar and all that kind of junk food. And uh, so now I have to um, defend estrogen every day because estrogen is such a mixed-up, confused subject for, for women and for doctors. Well, it's important you mentioned the toxins in the external environment. That's so important. Genetically modified foods, the herbicides and pesticides they spray on our food, I mean, uh, that, that, like glyphosate and EMF destroy intracellular communication. If our cells can't communicate, things are going to break down. Opens up the blood-brain barrier so creepy things can get into the brain and also into the gut. I mean, there are a lot of things that I think people just think are normal that are harming us. Electromagnetic fields as well. Uh, things that are, you know, when they're trying to alter the weather, things drop down on us such as aluminum and Lord knows what else. So these environmental toxins can be a full-time job alone. And finding organic food, you know, especially if it's reasonably priced, is also a big challenge nowadays. Oh, absolutely. And there's no question that these chemicals are doing so many harmful things that we now understand a little bit better, like, you know, the artificial sweeteners. So they have articles oh. where it can alter our DNA. It can destroy our gut microbes, you know, the ones that are so critical for our survival. And so many of these are endocrine disruptors for all different hormonal systems, especially estrogen. You know, they're like what they call xenoestrogens. They can do anything involving hormones. They can interfere with the production, distribution, receptor function, the degradation and the elimination of hormones to create really metabolic chaos in the body. And talking about rain, I'm on the Pacific Ocean here in California, where there's unfortunately a great deal of mercury, like you mentioned aluminum, there's uh -huh. a great deal of mercury 
in the Pacific Ocean, and we have what we now have labeled mercury fog. So when the moisture comes off, you know, and settles on the plants as dew, it actually contains a ridiculous amount of mercury. So even when you get organic vegetables, they can have a coating of mercury. And they actually had a study looking at coastal mountain lions in California compared to inland mountain lions, and they found that the coastal ones had 10 times the level of mercury compared to the inland ones, and they're not eating fish. They always say, you know, don't eat the mercury-laden fish, which I always say, too, but they're not eating fish. They're eating like rabbits, but the rabbits are eating leaves and grass and such, and that's coated in mercury, and then the mercury in the rabbits goes into the, the mountain lion. So, yes, it is such a challenge. I mean, we're working on upregulating detoxification pathways all the time and trying to find, you know, food that is even organic, which is so expensive, unfortunately, because um, the government supports here in, you know, just I, probably other places besides the U.S., but it supports the chemical factory-type made food as opposed to the organic produce. And even when you get organic, you're not totally sure what you're getting. And also, you know, it can have, from the wind blowing glyphosate from one field to the other, you never know for sure what is in your organic food. So you don't want to sound hopeless. It's not futile, but it is challenging. Yeah, it's not avoiding toxins. It's trying to minute minimize and mitigate them it's we can't avoid this stuff any longer it's just everywhere even in our teeth mercury in our teeth we brush our teeth it goes straight up to the brains uh you know pick at the teeth clean your teeth go straight up to the brain it's not good but anyway why don't you tell me about your journey i mean you started off and how you got on this path of one of doing what you're doing Well, somehow, I'm not even quite sure why. I just intuitively knew from the very beginning of my medical practice that there was more to optimizing health than just the conventional approach, which is usually what we call the pill to the ill, the pharmaceuticals, and then surgical procedures. So that's pretty much what conventional medicine encompasses, and that's what I was taught. And so I became a very, you know, accomplished surgeon. You know, I was teaching surgery at USC. I was doing all the high-tech surgeries, and I was what I call an early adapter. Every new pharmaceutical that came down the pipeline, I would incorporate into my practice, and then I learned sometimes the hard way, uh uh-oh, these drugs have untoward effects that haven't really been talked about, and I'm the one that's finding out about it and Mm. reporting it back to the pharmaceutical company. But I learned very quickly that there had to be more than just that. And so in my practice, which I started from scratch, mainly because nobody wanted me, even though I was like the top student in my residency, because um, that was the heyday of discrimination, you know, for against women. And they didn't, the men were the ones who ruled the practices, and they didn't really see why they would want to bring in a woman, because she would probably you know, be trouble and have babies and take off. So I looked at their practices and I said, you know what? Uh, They're not smarter than me. If they can do it, I can do it. So I never thought I had the entrepreneurial spirit, but I sort of, you know, how necessity produces results sometimes. And I just went out and started my own practice. And very early on, I incorporated what I called my ancillaries. So I brought in 
a host of different, like, you know, people that were trained in areas I had no knowledge about specifically, but I knew that they could help my patients. So I had a Chinese medicine practitioner. I had a psychologist, a nutritionist, a massage therapist, a biofeedback specialist. So I brought in all these different people that had these skill sets, and then I referred to them, and my patients thrived. But then back about 16 years ago now, after doing thousands of deliveries for like 25 years, I felt it was my time to step down from doing the deliveries and actually go to sleep sometimes because I had a life of circadian rhythm dysfunction for so many years. And once I got a little more sleep, I started looking at what I personally was doing. And I saw that in gynecology, I was since I took the obstetrics out, I was mostly prescribing pharmaceuticals and doing surgeries. And I was dealing with end-stage diseases. And I then demanded the pharmaceutical reps that paraded through my office in the day to show me the studies that allowed the FDA to approve their drug in the first place, which I thought, how come I never asked them to show me the proof of what they presented to the FDA? So then I demanded that. And then when I looked at the studies and I saw the difference between what the effects were of the pharmaceutical versus placebo, and I saw, like, the one that really resonated was for overactive bladder drugs. They were, like, really proliferating in the day when that sort of was the thing, you know, that they had all these drugs coming out for overactive bladder. And I saw that over 24 hours, what they often did was reduce one trip to the bathroom. That was it. And in return, you increased your risk of constipation and dementia. And it's like, wait a minute, I don't think the trade-off is really worth it for one less trip to the bathroom. So, and then I started questioning many other pharmaceuticals that I had just sort of accepted on face value. And I saw, oh my gosh, look at all these side effects. Look at the, the studies. They really, like, wow, when you really analyzed it, when you looked at absolute numbers, and you took out the percents, you know, it's like the percents sound good, but when you look at the absolute numbers that are benefited, it's really low. And look at the side effect profile, and that's when I said, I'm lost. I'm just, I don't know what I'm doing anymore. I'm doing surgery for end-stage disease. These pharmaceuticals are not what I thought. And um, birth control pills seem to be the go-to for every reproductive-aged woman's problem, no matter what it is. And what the heck are those things anyway? that I've been prescribing all these years, and I started taking courses with naturopaths and um, functional medicine practitioners, and I thought, who are these people anyway? Like, it's like a fringe of my medical life. I'd never heard of them. But I started looking at what they were doing, and I ended up at one conference with naturopaths. I was the only MD in the room, and it happened to be another MD who was lecturing, and I went up to her at a break, and I said, Dr. Lodog, that's her name. I said, yes. I am yes, so I lost. I don't know what to do. And she said, come to the fellowship in integrative medicine. And we have a new class starting. I went home. I, uh, that was in Portland. I flew home that Sunday. I applied. Two weeks later, I was in Tucson. And I did the two-year fellowship, and I've continued to learn, and it's so exciting. And now I'm the one educating all over the country and the world, and I've never looked back, only forward, as I create like new paradigms in the treatment of women and ways to maintain and optimize health. That is so exciting. It's quite disillusioning when we kind of look at a pill for an ill. We're treating symptoms. We're not looking at the cause. 
sick care, disease management. It's quite disillusioning when we wake up and see that. And it's kind of, oh, it's disillusioning. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, uh, let's get into hormones. What is estrogen? Well, that is a question that most people don't even think about. They just think estrogen is this one hormone. But actually, estrogen is a family of hormones, and they have incorporated in healthcare like chemicals that are never even found in a human body, and they're calling them estrogen. Technically, they're actually endocrine disruptors or xenoestrogens. If you look at the estrogens that are produced in the human body, there are four types now, and they each have a letter that starts E because of estrogen, so a big E, and then they have a number like one, two, three, four, kind of like the B vitamin. So everyone knows that there is not a B vitamin, right? There's a family of B vitamins, like B1, it goes all the way up, like with B12, and um, maybe there's other Bs, but those are the ones that we use. And so each one has a label, like B1 is thiamine, B2 is riboflavin, and then they do different things in the body, but they're all in the family. So same thing with estrogens. E1 is called estrone. E2 is estradiol, and that's the estrogen produced by the ovaries during the reproductive years. E3, <clears throat> E3 is estriol. That's the dominant estrogen produced by the placenta during pregnancy. And then there's an E4, estretrol, which is a fetal estrogen. And so we'll just leave that out of the equation since I'm not talking to any fetuses here. So, but, um, so we have the predominantly three estrogens, and they each bind differently to receptors. So hormones work in many ways, but the dominant way is by binding to a specific receptor. And estrogens have different receptors. So there's one that's called alpha. So you know how everybody likes Greek letters. So there's an alpha, and then there's a beta, and then there's another set that are only called, they're, they're jeepers, they're um, membrane receptors. So the alpha and beta, <clears throat> they work predominantly through the nucleus of the cell. So they call them nuclear receptors. And then the membrane receptor works on the, the material that surrounds and encompasses the cell called the membrane. And when you work, a hormone works through nuclear receptors, those are slower acting because they involve the production of a protein. You have to have, you know, um, messenger RNA and a ribosome and all these processes that go on to make, and to make it could be an enzyme, it's a protein. And then on the membrane, the, those receptors create incredibly rapid effects. So they're not the slower ones like the nuclear. This is really rapid effects like signaling agents, like kinases. But now we know, we thought the alpha and beta only worked in the nucleus, but now we know they also work on the membrane and they also interact with one another. Like if you have a lot of um, action in the alpha, um, then it affects the beta. And if you have a lot of action in the beta, it actually down-regulates alpha. And all of this is designed to optimize health through the reproductive years and through you know, pregnancy. So pregnancy, for example, the dominant estrogen is estriol, which only binds predominantly to the beta receptor. 
and the beta receptor changes how the immune system works. And so you have a very different effect in pregnancy with the estriol than in a reproductive age woman who's not pregnant with the dominant estrogen being estradiol. And it turns out in the postmenopausal woman and also in metabolically unhealthy, like obese reproductive aged women, they have a lot of estrone that's E1 produced through the transformation of hormones coming predominantly, some from the ovary, but predominantly from the adrenal gland, which are the androgens, and they're converted through an enzyme action in fat tissue, especially increased under the um, influence of systemic or body-wide inflammation into this estrogen called estrone, and estrone binds predominantly on the alpha receptor, and that creates a whole different set of effects, and different organs in the body have a different predominance of these different receptor types. So you can see it's quite complicated, and so when people throw all the hormone estrogen into one label, and they don't understand that all of these different estrogens have different effects in the body, and you cannot interchange them. They're different. And so it's like if someone has a deficiency of B12, you wouldn't just give them a boatload of B1. Everyone knows that. So that's how it is. And so when do people have done hormone therapies, you know, they've given the wrong type of estrogen, they get a different, you know, outcome than if they'd given the right estrogen, but then they malign estrogen as a whole. And then they throw into the mix chemicals that are actually estrogen endocrine disruptors like plastics, you know, and they think of them as estrogen and they're actually disrupting estrogen's function in the body. Or they give a man-made so-called estrogen like what is put in birth control pills, which is ethanol estradiol, which has a different effect than estradiol, even though it sounds similar, it's a different molecule, and it has a different effect in the body, and then they just lump it all together. So it's complex, and this just has to stop. It's like also my other analogy is fat. So if you gave someone a boatload of trans fat, which we know is so toxic, and then you had a bad outcome, then in that study, you gave a lot of food with trans fat, and then you didn't like the outcome, and then you said, oh my gosh, fat is evil, so never, never eat any foods that have, uh, you know, monounsaturated fats like olives and olive oil. Never eat anything like, you know, salmon that has, or sardines that have omega-3 because all fats are evil because look at the result of this study with trans fat. That's what's happened to poor estradiol. It's been lumped in with the other estrogens, the chemical endocrine disruptors, and, and then I have to go and try to straighten out this mess because women have become so afraid of the human bioidentical estrogen called estradiol, which I have renamed from a sex hormone into a life hormone because it maintains all the cellular functions throughout every organ system in the female body for the purpose of maintaining optimal reproductive functions because you can't have someone who is successful in terms of being fertile and being pregnant and making healthy babies if they don't have 
a healthy body. That's like really important. We know that in obstetrics, if you have an unhealthy woman who becomes pregnant, she's most likely to get all these pregnancy complications. So that's why estradiol is the life hormone. And it's been so confused with all these different estrogens and chemical endocrine disruptors, it can make your head spin. But you can see that this is a very important topic for every doctor and every woman to really decipher and understand to get really the health that they need and not be afraid. It's like, don't be afraid of the wrong things. Be afraid of the right things. Yeah, like Kremer is another thing that, you know, they do studies on these hormones and they come out with awful results. They're using the wrong hormones. But estrogen exactly. Must be, exactly. Estrogen must be so important because there's a receptor in every single cell in our body, including the heart, the lungs, the skin, the brain, the colon, the liver, fat cells, immune every, cells. Mm-hmm. It must affect every single thing in the body. And it must be like a symphony interacting with everything else in the body to give each cell what it needs. Absolutely. And You know, that's why it's like so important to understand that whether you want to as a human female, whether you want to have babies or not, totally should be your choice. But recognize that only humans, they're the only species of animal on the planet that actually tries to control their reproductive destiny, right? So if you had a bunch of, um, you know, dogs out there uh, or you had a a bunch of cats or you had a bunch of monkeys or whatever, any animal at all, they wouldn't say, you know what, this isn't a good year. I don't think I want to have a baby. I mean, they don't, they just mate, right? They, you know, you just have mating season and that type of thing. But humans have really um, decided, and I agree with this, that they should have babies when they want, they should have how many they want. And so, but if you understand that nevertheless, the prime directive of life is the creation of new life. In obstetrics, I figured that out a long time ago. You know, that's just what every female body was designed for. And so in order to be successful in creating new life, like you said, you need to have every organ working properly. And that's why estradiol is the hormone. I call it like the metabolic glue that links every organ system together. Like you said, in a beautiful synchrony or symphony to have every organ system working in the same time zone to work in a beautiful synchrony so that everything works together for optimal health for the purpose of survival so you can raise the children, the, the purpose of being healthy so that you can be pregnant and get through a pregnancy because now we recognize pregnancy is the ultimate stress test of a reproductive age woman. And if you so-called fail that stress test of pregnancy by having a pregnancy related complication, it's a big red flag that when you get older, even if you recover from, you know, the gestational diabetes or gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, if you recover as you age and get older, you're at a high risk of having metabolic dysfunctions recur, like, you know, getting hypertension or diabetes and so on as you age. That's a red flag if you have pregnancy-related complications because, you know, if you fail so-called reproduction 101 or if you have irregular cycles now, that's associated with long-term risk for cardiovascular health and if you have infertility. So, you know, there's such a link between 
overall health, or what we call metabolic homeostasis, where all the organ systems work in you know unity and there's not this out-of-control inflammation and so on, that all of that is linked to having reproductive success because like fertility is a vital sign of a reproductively healthy woman if they're fertile. And if they're infertile, it's just a red flag that, hey, this woman is unhealthy. And of course, every woman, when she transitions into menopause, becomes infertile and then sterile. And that is transformative for her metabolic systems as her estrogen levels become, you know, sort of hard to regulate. They're like all over the place and then they become lower and then the ovaries cease to produce estradiol and progesterone completely. That's a tremendous metabolic transformation for those women. And this is often not really recognized in our conventional medical world. They they just ignore all the effects of losing these vital life hormones as women age, and they don't look even at the clues, like this woman had problems in pregnancy or with fertility or with her menstrual cycles. That's a clue that this woman is at high risk for developing these problems as she ages. All of this is just completely goes over everybody's head. And, you know, it's like, wait a minute, you have to recognize and define, like, who's at risk so you can monitor, measure, and then take preemptive action to try to maintain metabolic health. So and this is, you know, just not happening. That makes a lot of sense. It's like uh, during pregnancy, it's a canary in the coal mine kind of warning that this is something that when stressed in the future can reoccur. So let's look at something that all women might be focused on one time or another. That's menopause. You know, what is it and how does it happen? Well, Nature makes it so all of our ovaries, every woman's ovary, has a timeline and an expiration date. And it's a little varied from woman to woman. And it's when the ovaries literally run out of eggs. And like unlike men who can continue to make sperm to some degree, you know, it changes as they age, but they can still make sperm forever, their entire lifespan. And women are born with their egg supply. They don't make new eggs. And when their egg supply is gone, it's really gone. And there's different techniques to try to help the eggs that are left in older women, you know, to try to make them healthier so that they can maybe still be fertile and get pregnant. But no matter what you do, you may be able to extend the lifespan of the ovaries a little bit but then it's over. Universally, it doesn't matter what your ethnicity is, what continent you live on. If you are a female, you are going to go through menopause, you know, assuming that you get into your 50s. Um, the average age in the U.S. for menopause, and menopause is defined by a man-made-up term. I mean, it's the man, menopause is a man-made-up word. Meno is the Greek word for moon kind of pleasant. You know, there's a lunar cycle and pause means it's over. Okay. So it's a permanent pause. So meno is like the stoppage of the lunar cycle of women. Um, and, but it's all the word menopause is associated with periods, the menstrual cycle. And it's not associated in people's minds with why I'm trying to change the association. It's loss of vital life hormones. The loss of the menstrual cycle is a consequence. 
it's like just a downstream effect of loss of these hormones. So we need to think of menopause differently. I can't change the name, but if I could, officially, I would call it ovarian senescence or ovarian aging as opposed to menopause, because it's not about periods per se. That's, like I said, a manifestation of loss of hormones. It's about loss of hormones, because when you talk about ovarian aging and loss of hormones, then you could sort of grasp that it's about every organ system, not just about end of periods and end of fertility. It's about every organ system, because like you said, every cell in the body has estrogen receptors, so every cell in the body is going to take a dramatic hit, you know, in a negative way by loss of these vital life hormones. And the process isn't like crossing a finish line. They Okay, so the way it's defined, the official medical definition of menopause is 12 consecutive months with no bleeding, no vaginal bleeding. We don't even know what that bleeding is. It could be dysfunctional hormonal imbalance bleeding. It could be a real period from ovulation. It's just bleeding, okay? By definition, 12 months go by and there's no bleeding. And then, boing, it's, you know, a hindsight, you've hit menopause. Like, you've crossed the finish line. This is not that what menopause is. It's a gradual process that takes place over years, and it parallels the decline of fertility. And, of course, because you're getting aged ovaries with aged eggs, and then you lose all your eggs because they're all gone. And so we have to rethink menopause as crossing a finish line into a process of ovarian aging and altered hormonal production and eventual total cessation of production of estradiol and progesterone. And so the average age in the U.S. for the official definition of menopause is between 45 and 55. That's a whole decade right there. And then um, it's late, let's call it normal menopause. Late menopause is a woman who is over 55, early is between 40 up to 45, and premature menopause is if a woman's periods completely stop and she's under age 40. And we know from many, many studies that the younger you are when you go through menopause, the worse off you are because the longer your ovaries continue to produce these vital life hormones, the better off you are. And so my personal feeling is the first step in solving a problem is to define the problem. First, you have to recognize the problem, too. Like, if you don't even realize that loss of these vital hormones from your ovarian, you know, production matters, you know, and all you think about is, hey, yay, I don't have periods anymore, hooray, you know, I didn't even like them, and now I don't care about fertility because I don't want to have more kids anyway, like I'm 50, then you're missing the whole picture of what's happening in your body, you know, it's like, you know, it's like, uh-oh, you know, you're losing these vital life hormones, and it may seem it's nice, you don't have to deal with periods, and you didn't care about, you know, pregnancy at that point in life anyway, but you don't, you're not looking at what is happening in your cells, in your organs. This is a big deal, and of course, um, it's just not really acknowledged that menopause, it just isn't. It's not widespreadly, uh, widespread known that menopause is really the beginning of what is really a rapid aging process in women throughout their organ systems involving every organ system. So most women know that when they get older, there's this increased risk of osteoporosis. 
okay? Um, and that's all they know. It's like, wait a minute. Women do make up 80% of all the individuals who get osteoporotic fractures. That's true because estrogen in the form estradiol, I'm saying estrogen, but I'm really referring to estradiol, the, the life hormone from the ovaries. Estradiol is vital to the function of bone. It controls the cells in the bone that both produce new bone and the cells in the bone that eat up or gobble up the old yucky bone. So it controls the whole balance of what we call bone turnover, the creation of new bone and the eating up of old yucky bone cells. And then in joints, osteoarthritis increases with the onset of menopause, and women have more joint replacements than men. In the brain, women have two and a half times the incidence of Alzheimer's disease with aging because the brain desperately needs estradiol. There are receptors throughout all aspects of the brain, the cortex, the hippocampus where memories are created, the hypothalamus that creates appetite and and the circadian rhythm so that you know when you're supposed to sleep and when you're supposed to wake up and all those types of things, all controlled by estrogen in the brain. So all these things are not functioning optimally and women have more sleep problems, mood problems, you know, cognitive problems. And then in the cardiovascular system, the after menopause by age 65, women have 75% of women 65 have high blood pressure. And by age 65, women have more strokes and ruptured aneurysms than do men. What I call the halo effect, where <clears throat> during the, um, the estrogen-producing years, women have much lower incidence of heart attacks and strokes than men. But by age 65, that halo effect of the estrogen is long gone. And women die from heart attacks the first heart attack more than men, and that's cardiovascular events are the number one killer of women, and no one is linking this to menopause. So we got to start thinking of menopause and what it really means to women. It's it's dramatic, and so many of the diseases that are considered diseases of aging are really diseases of estradiol deficiency which then leads down a path like a domino effect of other deficiencies like the GI tract, the entire nervous system that controls the gut, it's called the enteric nervous system, is controlled by estradiol in large measure. And so you have change in gut motility and absorption. The lining cells of the gut require estradiol. So you have worse digestion, absorption of nutrients, and you get nutrient deficiencies, which leads to cellular dysfunction. So it's really like a domino effect, one thing after another, but it's initiated by loss of these vital life hormones. And that's why I'm like, you know, yelling from the treetops, the mountaintops, wherever I can be, like estrogen in the form of estradiol and progesterone, it's sidekick, like Batman and Robin. These are hormones that are vital to cellular function. And when you don't have them, you get cells that are not getting instructions. So the hormones that we're talking about, they are like the information delivery system to the cells. They tell the cell what to do, what to make, what enzymes to make, what proteins to make. They control cells 
that decide when they should die, their old yucky cells, they should commit cell suicide. They tell cells, now you should clean up your act and clean and do like renovations. We call it autophagy, clean the insides of the cells up and renew the cellular organelles, the structures within the cells. All of that is controlled. The immune system becomes aged and doesn't work as well after loss of these vital life hormones. And that's why women in the younger years survive infections like COVID. They have a higher survival rate when they have hormones. They survive the flu more. They survive sepsis more. They survive traumatic brain injuries more than do men because of the vital estrogen that helps renew and restore because estrogen is about restoration. It's about healing. But when you lose it, guess what? You can't do those things well. And all the things that we took for granted that we're so good at during the reproductive years, gone, poof, gone. And, and we just aren't thinking straight as a medical group, you know, society about what's, what this really means to women to go through this transition into menopause. So what I hear you saying is that when our ovaries uh, stop producing eggs, it has these hormonal effects changing the estradiol and estrogens, and so it affects our bones with osteoporosis, joints with arthritis, hypertension, uh, heart disease, strokes, immune issues, gut issues, and that everything changes. Um, so does this also happen in the men? No, <laughs> that's the thing. So men, men have testosterone as their dominant hormone, um, and women have testosterone too, but it's a tiny fraction of the amount that men have. And it turns out that men should love estradiol too. They should just love it. They just don't know they should love it because testosterone is the precursor to estradiol. So if you look at the ovaries, how do the ovaries make estradiol, the estrogen of the ovary? Well, the ovaries have a group of special cells that make testosterone. Testosterone is made in ovaries. Then it moves down like an assembly line to another group of cells called the granulosa cells, and that has an enzyme called aromatase that converts testosterone into estradiol. So testosterone is the precursor to estradiol. All estrogens, all the different estrogens, come from androgens, and these are made Androgens are made by the ovaries, and the largest amount comes from actually the adrenal gland and different organs in the body, and men are very good at this. They have the enzyme aromatase, which is in the ovary, that converts testosterone into estradiol. Well, this same enzyme exists in the brain, in arteries, in the skin, in the gut, so that testosterone that a man makes, and he should make a lot of it, that his testosterone, when needed, it's all like a properly controlled system, gets turned into estradiol locally in the tissues. We call that paracrine. So in the hormonal system, endocrine means a hormone is produced in one organ, and then it goes into the blood, and it's distributed to other organs. That's why, like in the ovary, the ovary makes the estradiol, it goes into the blood, and then it's distributed throughout the whole body to all these different organs. And you can measure it in the blood. In men, you can measure testosterone in the blood because the testosterone is produced mostly in the, in the men's testes, and then it goes in the blood, and then it goes to all the organs of the man's body. But in those different organs, 
they have that enzyme aromatase. So much of testosterone's effect, not all of it, testosterone has its own receptors too, but much of the effect of testosterone is in the local organs, conversion with the enzyme aromatase from testosterone into estradiol, but it stays in that organ, in that tissue. It doesn't get in the blood and then circulate. So a man's blood level of estradiol is very low, but his tissue levels can actually be quite high. And in fact, during the reproductive years, men's brains, for example, which the brain has the enzyme aromatase, the brain of a man makes six to eight times as much estradiol as a woman's brain. Because, but a woman's brain is not suffering because she gets all that estradiol circulating from in the blood that is made in the ovaries. So her brain is happy. It gets plenty of estradiol to do everything it needs. But um, And men, they have plenty of estradiol in their brains, but it's made from their testosterone, but it's not circulating. It's just in the brain, which needs it. The brain loves estradiol. But after menopause, women's testosterone level is so tiny, and they, they don't convert much in the brain. They make some, but not a little bit, but not that much. They don't have a lot of testosterone. And the women's brains are different anyway. They're not programmed to make a ton of estradiol in the brain because it's unnecessary during the reproductive years. They're supposed to get plenty from their ovaries, so why do they need to do that? So they're not, their brains aren't adapted to do that, but men's are. So men make testosterone their whole lives. Now, some men, their testosterone levels decline as they age, and along with that, they start getting a lot of the same problems that women get, you know, involving their different organ systems. Uh, That's why testosterone is so critical for men. But men never go through this, like, off-the-cliff kind of a state like women do, where they suddenly go, it's not sudden, but, you know, you get to a point where you have no production of estradiol from their ovaries at all, zero. It's literally zero. But men never get to that point. They're always making some testosterone, and healthy men can make quite a bit for a very long time. And so they don't go through this deprivation status that women have with having estradiol deficiency states to a severe degree in all their different organ systems. And so they don't have what we have. That's why men have lower incidence of, for example, you know, uh, having joint replacements, osteoporosis, and Alzheimer's. But they have their own problems, and men age too, you know, so it's not like they don't have problems, but they have a different set, and they just don't go through. I mean, menopause is a made-up word. There's no such thing as menopause, but they do have often aging problems related to testosterone decline, but it's not the same like menopause. It's you know, a, a different decline. It's very, it can be variable. It's not essential that, you know, like inevitable that every man makes no testosterone. In fact, that doesn't happen. But it's a hundred percent, a hundred percent that every woman, as she transitions into middle age and older, she's going to a hundred percent of them lose ovarian production of estradiol and progesterone. A hundred percent, no ifs, ands, or buts. So we are different from men, and it's just not really talked about. And, you know, I actually, it was interesting. I was in Egypt a couple of months ago, and I was walking through all these tombs and, you know, and um, temples, and I saw all the beautiful pictures on the wall, and I looked at all of them, and I said, my goodness, 
everyone in these pictures they made three to five thousand years ago. They're all young people. I said, but did they discriminate against old people in ancient Egypt? And then I went and researched it. The average age, if you survived childhood, if you did, that's a feat in itself. If you survived childhood in ancient Egypt, the average woman's lifespan was 35. I mean, they didn't have, menopause was not an issue. And then what if you move more closer to today? From the 12th century until just in the last couple of hundred years, the average lifespan, if you survived childhood, was 55. So, like, long-term lifespan in the menopausal status, it just wasn't really an issue. Not that there was anything So what do we anyway. do at menopause to get back these wonderful, <clears throat> rejuvenating, healthy, soothing effects from the estradiol? Well... You, pres- you get them prescribed. <laughs> That's, there's, um, you know, it's like, um, th- this is, I have analogies for everything. If you are a type 1 diabetic, that means your, your special islet cells in your pancreas cease to make insulin, okay? You get insulin. If you're a type 1 diabetic, you get insulin. It's a hormone. You need it because you don't have it, and you can't live without it, literally. So you now it's a miracle. They had been able to create identical to human insulin. If you lose your thyroid gland because you have a tumor or cancer, whatever the reason, you have your thyroid gland removed, you have no thyroid hormone, what do we do? We give people thyroid hormone. If you don't have a hormone, you get the hormone. So why would we, why are we treating women who lose their hormone production from their ovaries any differently than we treat people who lose other hormone production in their bodies. And you can go organ by organ. You know, if you don't make um, the proper adrenal hormones, we give them to you, you know? So why do we not just give... Brilliant people have been able to create human, bioidentical estradiol and progesterone. The body can't tell the difference. It's identical in the chemical structure. It's a clone. It's identical. And we can provide this for women. So to me, it's like a no-brainer. If you don't have that hormone, your body thrives with that hormone, those hormones. They, the body can adapt, but not in optimal ways to living without those hormones, then why would we not just give those hormones and try to give them in a way that is going to, to as best we can, replicate the hormonal status of a healthy 20-something-year-old woman? Because that's when a woman is optimally healthy. So we want to try to get to the levels. Like when we give insulin, we try to give levels that are going to properly control blood sugar to the optimal extent. When we give thyroid to people who don't have a thyroid gland, we try to give it to be optimal. You know, so my thing is, if we're going to give hormones to women after menopause, we should give it to be optimal, which means to restore the levels and the rhythms of a woman when she's at her peak health status, which is like in her 20s. So that's my goal. And it's it's important to have progesterone to balance the estro- estrogen because uh, otherwise they balance each other. And we've got like three minutes left. So are there any major points that you would like to make, any summaries? And at the very end, be sure to tell people how to get a hold of you. I mean, what I'm hearing is there's a whole symphony of 
hormones. Estrogen is vital because every single cell uses it each in a different way. And it's nice to continue the support of estrogen after menopause when it, uh, the hormones stop due to uh, reduction in the egg status. And we've got to balance the estrogen with progesterone. And what else would you like to say, summary points, and how people can get a hold of you? Okay. Well, yes, it's a very big topic, and you summarized it really well. We should, at every age, try to have optimal levels of hormones. In the reproductive years, do all the lifestyle things that we talked about to optimize ovarian health and function. And when you're older and you go through the menopause, find a practitioner to give you physiologic restoration of hormones. And don't be afraid. Embrace and love the ovarian hormones. They are your lifeline to optimizing health. And so just love hormones. Don't be afraid of estradiol. It's a woman's best friend. Progesterone, the sidekick, like you said, we didn't talk much about progesterone, but yes, it's like the yin-yang. You need them both, even if you have a hysterectomy, because progesterone also has receptors throughout the body. And I'm in a practice. It's called Integrative Medical Group of Irvine, where I see patients. I have a team that works with me to optimize women's health throughout every decade of life. And I'm like old-fashioned. I still have a brick-and-mortar to practice, but I can also do telemedicine, and I have courses I'm going to be producing. I have one out just recently on how to prescribe hormones, and as well, um, I have my Instagram live, dr. Period Felice Gersh, and I hope to write more books, and I hope people will, you know, look me up and uh, see all the different stuff about uh, my lectures online, and uh, come and see me, perhaps. Okay, sounds good. This is such a crucial topic, and uh, it's got to be done lovingly and carefully. For example, if men take a lot of testosterone, they might, through the aromatose pathway, end up with a lot of, uh, you know, too much estrogen in the wrong places and have, you know, man boobs, whatever. So it's, it, it needs to be monitored and watched through somebody uh, who's well-experienced, such as Dr. Gersh. And any final comments? Well, yes, I like what you said. Um, don't go, if you're looking for them, don't go and get them just online from just some kind of online program. Don't go to a clinic that just gives hormones because hormones are just an integral part of everything. So you've got to have your whole health status evaluated. Someone has to know you as a person. Okay, so right, it's not, it's a piece of the whole puzzle. You've got to look at everything. So don't just get hormones and think that's the end of the line. It's just foundational but it's like necessary, but not sufficient. You got to do the rest of this stuff too. Okay. Well, there you have it, folks. This is information on how to uh, move toward optimal wellness. Uh, you uh, can share this news, share it with your friends, discuss it with your doctor. Uh, you can you know, contact Dr. Gersh, etc., to get in more information. And above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.